Hi, I'm Annika Zitto. And I'm Bella Burkhardt. And you're listening to Spilling the Tea with CCE. We're so glad that you decided to click on our podcast, and we promise you won't be disappointed. Located in Hempstead, New York, Hofstra's Center for Civic Engagement is committed to getting student voices heard right now. And that mission doesn't stop on Long Island. We want this podcast to continue the conversations we've been having on campus. Each episode features our student fellows as they spill the tea on everything from news and politics to social movements and the issues that affect our day-to-day lives. From healthcare to mental health, nothing is off the table. So sit back, relax, and let's start spilling the tea. Hello, and welcome back to Spilling the Tea with CCE, the podcast created and led by fellows at Hofstra University Center for Civic Engagement. For those of you who don't know, CCE is the university institute designed to educate students and democratic values by actively engaging them as knowledgeable citizens through collaborative partnerships with their campus, local, state, national, and global communities. My name is Olivia Tu. I'm a global studies and geography major and a senior. My name is Margaret Engel. I'm triple major, global studies, geography, and drama, and I'm also a senior. So today we're going to be discussing the situation in Myanmar, uh, which is a country in Asia. It's located to the south of China and to the west of India. And I'm going to start by giving a little bit of historical background because Myanmar is not a country that's typically discussed when it comes to global politics. So Myanmar, which is also known as Burma, was a British colony. It was occupied by Japan during World War II and gained independence in 1948, after which it was ruled by a democratic government. After a coup in 1962, the country has been run by the military or a military-backed government in a rather oppressive regime. People have been struggling under the regime due to failed economic policies as well as other problems. Myanmar actually used to be one of the richest countries in Asia until the coup in 1962. While the military has been in power, the quality of life in Myanmar has declined significantly. A World Health Organization survey from 2000 found that Myanmar's health system was the second worst in the world, while another survey found it to be among the 15 biggest military spenders in the world. In 1988, violent protests against the regime erupted, which resulted in the first multi-party election in decades, which took place in 1990. However, the military still won the elections and remained in power. After the protests in 1988, many Western states implemented economic sanctions, which brought China closer to Myanmar as their main economic and political ally. Countries like India and Japan supported the pro-democracy protests but eventually secured ties with the prevailing military regime. In 2011, when retired General Thien Sen became president, the government began to transition to less repressive policies, especially when it came to the media. However, this was not deemed sufficient by some. For example, domestic journalists have been arrested and attacked, especially for reporting on the military or the Rohingya. The Rohingya are an ethnic group residing in Myanmar that have been historically oppressed and marginalized. The recent violent attacks against them prompted wide criticism from around the world. In 2016, 
The National League for Democracy, or the NLD, took office as the first democratically elected civilian-led government in Myanmar since 1962. The president of the NLD, Aung San Suu Kyi, is widely revered by people in Myanmar, and she even won a Nobel Prize for her defense of democracy. However, she has still been criticized for things like refusing to condemn the violence against the Rohingya. However, she remains popular among the citizens of Myanmar. Uh, in addition, the NLD has also continued to reinforce laws that suppress freedom, freedom of speech, and the military retains significant political power, which is reinforced by the 2008 constitution. In addition to this, there have been ongoing ethnic and religious conflicts, the most well-known being the violence against the Rohingya. So that was just a quick overview of Myanmar's historical background, which leads us up to the events of February 1st. Yeah, and I like remember learning about the Rohingya like a couple years ago, just like part of a geography class. And like even back then, learning about what was happening to them was just so horrific. So like it really like the more you read more about the coup that's happening right now, you have to think about that things can only be like worse for the Rohingya, basically. I totally agree. So um, it's, it's a really precarious situation. And the, the violence has been especially horrific for all of the, the protesters from the coup. So Margaret, if you wanted to give a little overview of what actually happened that led up to the chaos. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically, in at last fall in 2020, there was a presidential election, uh, which Aung San Suu Kyi won by like a huge margin. It was a landslide victory for her. Uh, and she was the incumbent, so she was reelected. And people in Myanmar kind of thought that that was it. However, there were increasing tensions between the NLD and the military, which was growing in power through economic interests. The military invested in a lot of different companies, uh, including the major telecommunications company in Myanmar, uh, which will come into play later. But basically, due to the rising power of the military, on February 1st, that morning, the military, which in Myanmar is called the Tatmada, marched towards the capital and immediately took control of the state. The only press release that morning from the Burmese press basically stated that Aung San Suu Kyi and other political leaders had been quote unquote taken. That includes 400 elected members of parliament who were put under house arrest in a government housing complex in the capital, which is Nepida. So yeah, 400 people plus more were taken under house arrest. Immediately, there were widespread internet outages across the country, and the state-run Myanmar radio and television said in a Facebook post that it was unable to broadcast anything due to quote-unquote technical issues. Keep in mind, the military has a ton of profit stemming from the telecommunications company. So since then, uh, social media outlets like Vimeo and Facebook have been trying to crack down on MRTV's spread of misinformation surrounding the protests. What is interesting is that the 
like a major reason that it reached national or international attention was a video of the coup went viral when footage of massive trucks and armed vehicles drove down this 10 lane highway in the capital during a fitness instructor's workout video. Like she's doing her workout and in the background are just these trucks like launching towards the capital. So that day, February 1st, uh, the military began searching for and arresting hundreds of political activists across ethnic groups, religions, and other identities. And since then, the military has led a mass persecution of protesters and taking control over hospitals, temples, schools, and other public facilities. They're currently going into temples and churches of all different religions and trying to negotiate taking over that facility. They've also been attacking people via airstrikes, and it's forced a lot of people to flee to Thailand or Bangladesh just to seek refuge. And some of them don't receive any medical attention or help for days after arriving there. So it's a really, really scary situation right now. Yeah, it's it's been difficult just researching the events as they progressed and watching the numbers go up of people who have been killed or injured or arrested. I, I want to say the number is somewhere in the, the hundreds now, I'm guessing. Do, do you have uh, more recent numbers on it, Margaret? I, I The latest death count that I saw was somewhere around 500, but I do know that over just the last weekend, 110 people at least were killed. And those are just the numbers that like the government has been able to report or media has been able to report. So we don't really even know the true death count at this point, which is really horrifying. Right, right. And it, it certainly doesn't help that the military has so much control, like you were saying, over the telecommunications services and, you know, the, the channels that they're able to use to, to spread misinformation and propaganda. Exactly. And so one might ask, who is the person who's mainly behind this? And that would be Min Ong Hleng, who is the Burmese army general who was previously commander in chief of defense services for the military. He's been working for the military for decades at this point and has long refused to cooperate with the NLD, uh, but basically just cooperated enough in 2010 to preserve his military power. And he has played a crucial role in persecuting the Rohingya Muslims in the Rakhine state the UN has been watching him. ICC has been watching him. He has been told, her, he's been criticized by media of just being racially motivated to persecute these Rohingya Muslims and ethnically motivated. Uh, he's been banned from traveling to the United States since July 2019. Uh, and throughout the 2020 presidential election in Myanmar, he consistently questioned the legitimacy of counting votes and or basically criticized the government of counting votes and voter fraud. Um, and he publicly vowed to accept the election results after casting his ballot, uh, but obviously didn't do that. And so upon realizing that he lost, he immediately started accusing the NLD of voter fraud and took the accusations to court 
And all of this is happening in late December, January. And in January, he threatened that if the accusations weren't addressed, that it wouldn't be out of the question to conduct a military coup. And so the day after he said that, the Union Election Commission, which was handling the case, deemed his accusations completely uncredible. And so the like weekend before the coup launched, the military finally released an official statement saying that it will abide by the laws of the 2008 Constitution. Now, keep in mind, Myanmar has only been a truly democratic country since 2010. So, again, it's important to note he is a major shareholder of a lot of powerful Burmese companies, such as the Myanmar Economic Holdings Limited, which pretty much funded the entire military coup. But he also owns a ton of stock in the telecommunications company and a company that releases FDA regulations, which was would totally play a huge role in how the Burmese government operates from here on out. And so a lot of people are criticizing him of doing all of this just to have some power before he retires. Um, he's older in age. He has a lot of different political connections, and he has a lot of stock in these Burmese companies. So those are all kind of clues that point to his desire to be in control. So he's definitely something to look out for. And it's, again, important to note that he's banned from traveling to the U.S., which if he is ultimately becoming the leader of Myanmar for we don't know how long, that will be kind of difficult to negotiate policy with them or figure anything out. It's uh, rather uncomfortably familiar to talk about the uh, 2020 election in which the results were disputed by the losing party which eventually resulted in a violent insurrection, which in the U.S. thankfully did not result in a total overthrow of the government. And it's, it's really, it's, it's saddening to see the, the people of Myanmar having to go through this and having to live through such instability. But it's been really impressive to also watch the protesters you know, continue to stand against such such violence and, you know, the the overwhelming power of the military. Like you said, they're they're using airstrikes, they're using sniper rifles and assault rifles against protesters who are sometimes just using umbrellas and, and makeshift barricades and whatever they, whatever they can get their hands on to defend themselves. Yeah. Yeah, the parallels between Myanmar and the U.S. are really insane. And it, it just shows how, like, how truly vulnerable we are to something like this happening in our country. I mean, like, uh, like we were pretty close. People stormed the Capitol. Our president accused us of voter fraud. I, and it just, like, and it's insane how, like, people can still say that, like, you can't compare the politics of the East and the West when like it really just there are so many similarities. So speaking of protest strategies, there's been like a lot of different ways that people have been protesting because of the internet shortages and social media crackdown. It's really difficult for Burmese protesters to one, connect with each other and community organize and two, uh, share any of the violence that they're actually experiencing. And then 
protesting has basically been taking place for weeks in many of the country's major cities. Uh, a lot of them are using, interestingly enough, the Hunger Games sign to show that they are rebelling against the military. And so some of the photos are just like really amazing to see. There's also videos of people banging pots and pans from their apartments just to like cause some noise distraction and ruckus. And then uh, a couple days ago, I was looking online and I saw like uh, an article about how some protesters are using these dolls, which the pronunciation might be a little rough, but I believe it's Pete Teen Tong. Uh, which are these little egg-shaped dolls that are traditional in Burmese culture. And if you roll them over, they'll always roll back over to be facing up. And so rather than risking people's lives and, you know, risking getting shot down by the military, a lot of protesters have been just placing those dolls in the streets. And the photos that have those dolls are just so amazing to see. But it's really crazy some of these protesters are getting really creative but i mean again like this past weekend was one of the most violent weekends in burmese history and so it's hard to know what protesters are going to do next and how much steam they really have left to keep going the the hunger games salute really surprised me and it's interesting because the 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 books I, I really enjoyed and when the movies came out I, I felt that the media sort of co-opted the um, message a little they, they started focusing on like the love triangle and the sort of like fashion and, and just kind of overlooked the actual sentiments of the the story which is about uh, protesting against the repressive government and what that looks like and I'm you know, I'm, I'm glad that someone sort of got the actual message and it's really interesting to see um, the the protester use that three-fingered salute um, and, you know, be, be inspired by, you know, a, a fictional uprising. Yeah, definitely. Like, I totally agree with how, like, Suzanne Collins wrote so much about how, like, protests and revolutions can so easily be turned into some kind of commodity that like I feel like it's so possible that it could happen with these protests soon just like how a lot of people argue that it's exactly what happens in America every time there's like a new protest it just turns into some kind of like materialistic like thing you can buy and sell and promote online so yeah but speaking of the U.S. and other countries. Olivia, I'd love to hear about like what the foreign response was to these protests. Right. Yeah. For, first of all, I, w- I want to focus on a really close neighbor of Myanmar, which is China, because they've had very close economic ties. And, and something important to remember is that Myanmar has uh, fairly significant reserves of oil and gas, and these have been a major energy supply to China. Um, And so this gives them a bit of leverage in their negotiations with China. And uh, before the coup, Xi Jinping's government had a fairly friendly relationship with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and her party. And there were discussions of infrastructure projects that would benefit China as well as Myanmar. 
But since the coup, there has been a sort of ambivalence from Beijing. And this has actually led protesters in Myanmar to attack Chinese-owned businesses as a way to sort of try and catch the government's attention and express their anger over the fact that, you know, China China's a pretty significant military power in the region and they have not openly condemned the coup. In fact, at the United Nations Security Council, they had a proposal to call to officially call the situation a coup and China and Russia uh, rejected this proposal. So there's there's been a lot of controversy over China's response or lack thereof. In terms of other nations, uh, the US, the UK and Canada, as well as some other nations have imposed economic sanctions and some other countries have called for the government to be reinstated. Um, and there's some to debate as to the effectiveness of sanctions because it's certainly a way for or to punish the country, but this often has the effect of impacting the most vulnerable people while the members of the military are still able to live comfortably. And there has also been a debate over the United Nations uh, doctrine of responsibility to protect, which is essentially the idea that, you know, countries have a responsibility to protect the vulnerable populations, which certainly applies in this case to the protesters that are being uh, ruthlessly killed and injured. But it, it is a difficult situation in terms of what other countries can do to help the protesters without overstepping boundaries, because the last thing that we need is more imperialism in South Asia. But, you know, it's it's hard. Definitely. And like, you bring up a really good point about like the efficacy of sanctions and you know even though sanctions are a non-violent way of tackling a global issue like this and a humanitarian crisis it still ultimately affects poor people more than it would the military or it would the government and so you know i've heard some people like even refer to sanctions as like a war crime in of itself because it's not really helping anything. And I was reading about like the U.S.'s response specifically to Myanmar and Biden said that he was going to keep the sanctions that he already had imposed on the government and possibly add more. But it's like if you already had the sanctions in the first place, then like who was it? Who was that benefiting? Because it's certainly not the Burmese people, you know? It's just a tough conversation. Yeah, it's, you know, because you can argue that sanctions, like, don't do anything. It's more of a symbolic gesture than anything. But then it's like, how do you, uh, how, how do you impose even stricter measures? Because I, I've, I've seen some people talk about potentially arming the protesters but then there's the possibility of that just turning into an all-out war, which is going to be, which is going to cause even more violence and, and death and instability. Not to mention the, you know, the sheer uh, military strength that the the current ruling party has. I, I was really surprised to find out that Myanmar's in the top 15 um, military spenders in the world because they're not that big of a country and 
I would not have expected that, but it's it really seems that in terms of firepower, the the protesters are just outmatched, and I I just don't really know what what else there is to consider here. Yeah, no, yeah, like it it's so hard, and, and you can see the tactics that the military is using, especially for gaining those finances. It, it's so similar to how you know. Nazi Germany rose to power in the 30s by just investing and investing in all of these war machines and building up their finances. And it's, and so it's scary to see where this could go for the Burmese people. And, you know, for the Rohingya too, as well, who are either fleeing to Bangladesh or who are going to be persecuted even more. So the future for Myanmar is definitely unclear but yeah, it, it's it's hard to watch for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I don't I don't want to like throw up my hands and say like there's nothing to be done because I, I do think that it's important as small it is as small as it is to just keep an eye on the situation, which is why I'm really glad that we're doing this podcast just so no more people can know about it because it's not something that's really making the headlines. But I I would rather that the protesters in Myanmar know that people in the world are watching and wanting them to succeed and possibly I'm sure there are nonprofits on the ground that you can donate to to contribute what little help that we can and you know keep an eye on social media see what they're what they're posting what the situation is and you know as as flimsy as, as it sounds just spreading awareness seems to be something of a start Definitely, definitely. Because while Burmese people are still facing internet outages and still can't really log on to their social medias and post what's really happening, I mean, what we can do is is post about it and try and spread awareness about it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Olivia. This was a really great conversation. I feel like I, I learned even more, but it's... I mean, I invite anyone who's listening to just take a deep dive and just learn as much as you can about this because it's a rabbit hole of, of crazy, crazy information and a lot of history too. So yeah, uh, a lot of our resources came from AP News and CNN and uh, a lot of different other Asian networking and broadcasting places. So Keep an eye out for that if you want to get some more information. And thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in continuing the conversation or learning more about Hofstra Center for Civic Engagement, well, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hofstra CCE or visit our website at hofstra.edu CCE. That concludes this episode of Spilling the Tea with CCE. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to connect with us on our social media. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hofstra CCE or visit our website at hofstra.edu CCE. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, be sure to tweet us with the hashtag CCET. That's hashtag C-C-E-T-E-A. The music you've heard this episode was written and composed by Ethan Tauber. Fun fact, it even includes the chord progression C, C, and E. We can't wait for you to join us again on our next episode. Thanks for spilling the tea with CCE.